Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. I want to just jump right into the headline news this morning out of Hong Kong. Jimmy Lai, uh, whom uh, whom we have discussed in the past because he's a personal friend of David Aikman. Uh, Jimmy Lai is uh, probably the foremost pro-democracy publisher in Hong Kong. Um, His his media outlets are often critical of the communist, of China's communist party. Um, Apple Daily is a really feisty pro-democracy magazine-style newspaper um, that uh, is operated by Next Digital. Next Digital is Jimmy Lai's um, publishing company. Jimmy Lai and his sons and several of his associates have been arrested in Hong Kong. Jimmy uh, has been charged specifically... Uh, let me see if I can find it here. Um, with collusion with foreign powers, um, I would say the timing of this uh, is almost certainly related to the sanctions imposed on the Chinese uh, by the United States. And uh, China is seeking to enforce laws in Hong Kong uh, after a year or more of massive pro-democracy demonstrations there. Uh, let us be praying today for our brother in Christ, Jimmy Lai. Uh, and in the bottom of the second hour today, uh, you know, I will certainly ask David Aikman uh, to comment about the arrest of his friend um, in Hong Kong. There are protests uh, ongoing in Belarus, in Beirut, uh, in the city of Portland, here in the United States of America. Um, there's unrest around the world. Maybe that would be a, a way to frame this portion of of our conversation today and maybe i will characterize it this way for all of us um if if this portion had a hashtag it would be pray the news there are often times when we read headlines and they are heartbreaking disturbing they are happening in places where we certainly have no personal influence but we have the power of prayer and let us never underestimate or devalue the power of prayer So in Belarus, the people are protesting what they perceive to be the rigged re-election of President Lukashenko. And and let me just say, you and I have lots of brothers and sisters in Christ in Minsk, which is the capital city of Belarus. In fact, the congregation where I worship has church planters on the field in Minsk, Belarus. And so let us pray today for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are right there on the front lines um, of an opportunity for the gospel. That's the way I'm going to frame it. That's the way I understand um, these events in the context of human history. In Beirut, we talked about uh, last week the horrific explosion there in the port of uh, Lebanon's capital city. 
Um, people are protesting, have been protesting now for a number of days as the death toll continues to climb um, from the explosion. It's almost now certain that the government's own ineptitude in storing thousands of tons of explosive contraband for years in the same port that contained the nation's grain reserves. Um, so the, you know, people are, people were already desperate. And we have been talking about the rising desperation in in Lebanon, um, where a massive percentage of the population are actually refugees from uh, neighboring uh, Syria. And so we have uh, not only families mourning the loss of those who who died in the explosion, but thousands of people injured, many of them very seriously um, and and a nation on the brink of financial collapse. And then uh, and so that would be in my pray the news headlines this morning. And then briefly, uh, just a a pivot toward Portland, Oregon. Um, Let me just say, you know, if you're the parent of any of these young white 20 somethings who are affluent enough to be rioting for the 74th consecutive night on the streets of Portland, it's time for you to like man up as a parent. I, I don't who's where are the parents of these people? This is the big question that I have. The police should not have to step in where parents are failing to get their own children under control. If those are your kids, you need to defund them, defund their lifestyle, because parents are responsible for if if, if, if kids got access to 74 straight nights of marauding in the streets of a city, terrorizing the residents, um, torching police facilities like I've I've reached my uh, my capacity here in terms of my willingness to just say, uh, you know, there's there's some right to do this. No, no, you don't have the right to riot. There's actually officially not a right to riot. Uh, and they are now attacking local citizens. In fact, there's video footage from over the weekend of these marauding uh, Antifa people, by the way, most of whom are affluent 20 something whites who have the backing of nonprofits who've now raised more than a million dollars to keep bailing them out night after night after night, bailing them out of jail after their successive arrests. They're not only attacking the police, they're now attacking uh, elderly residents. Uh, So there's video footage of an elderly resident pleading with them to stop vandalizing her neighborhood. And instead, they are shouting her down, saying, this isn't your world anymore. And they're covering her with paint. This is, uh, yeah, whoever raised these people needs to get out there and round up their own children and haul them home. That would be my uh, parental encouragement today. All right, pray the news. No Jesus, no peace. Those would be the uh, ways I'm probably supposed to be framing it. All right, Zach Jenkins up next from Cedarville University. He and I are going to get a little catch up here on the coronavirus. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Zach Jenkins is back with us this morning. Uh, Here are the headline numbers related to COVID cases here in the United States. We have surpassed the 5 million mark in terms of positive COVID tests. We've had 162,938 related COVID fatalities, um, people who have lost their lives. 97,000 kids, children, tested positive for COVID-19 in the last two weeks of July. Uh, and schools that reopened last week, many are uh, now pivoting toward virtual because they 
had spikes in cases. All right. So, Zach, welcome back. Good morning. Can I uh, can I have the hope? Um, I see the word plateauing with a question mark on my on my uh, sheet here. Um, can I can I hope that now that we've surpassed the five million mark, we are plateauing? Well, so, so what we're really seeing is a plateauing of the growth in new cases. It doesn't mean that we don't have new cases occurring, but the rate that they're actually increasing has gone down. So it's it's kind of leveling off to the point where we should kind of see a steady number of cases for the remainder of the year until it eventually reaches a point where enough people have been exposed that it's not as impactful as it was. All right. So when we talk about a plateauing of cases, we're saying it may hold steady at the you know roughly five million mark, let's just say, um, for some period of time until we reach the stage where enough people in the United States of America have contracted the coronavirus that we have what you and I have talked about before, which is a herd immunity. Well, that's that's pretty close. Really, um, we're going to see the cases continue to rise, but they won't rise quite as quickly, if that makes sense. That rate Mm -hmm. is the part that's flattening. Okay, the rate of growth is flattening. We are not yet at a flat rate. I got I I'm see, it's good. You sometimes you have to say it twice. I appreciate that. Um, (laughs) All right. uh, That is going to uh, when we start talking about the numbers, the, the magnitude of numbers here. Um, the rate of testing and our ability to test quickly seems really important. How are we doing on that front? Testing has been pretty challenging, to be honest with you, and uh, it's kind of varied based on region, especially in some of the more rural areas. I think they've been more challenged with getting tests done. Uh, we've seen labs back up, and there have been a lot of things over the past few weeks that they've been trying to do at a federal level to improve that. So they've implemented um, something called pooled testing, which is where they're basically batching a bunch of tests together to run off of a single testing machine. So that should help decrease the clogs in our system that we've seen that have really uh, prevented us from getting results back quickly. To put it in perspective of what that means, um, some of the testing that we've been doing has been taking days to get back. And these aren't tests that need to take days. They're, They're faster than that. And it's just all because we've had our labs slammed with these numbers of tests. So that method should improve. There have been some other things that have all that also seem to be improving the process, or at least we hope will improve the process, like new ways we can do certain tests that we've always done, and then new types of tests that we can do that are a little bit more rapid in nature. Okay, and then um, I'd love to have a conversation with you about treatments and maybe how uh, treatment protocols are changing. I read and passed on to you Um, something about a Friday Zoom call that's apparently taking place. Dozens of critical care doctors from around the world gathering um, on Friday afternoons to discuss these life support technologies. So when we come back, can you just tell us what your experience is, where you are in terms of treatment protocols? Sure. Great. Let's take a very brief break. I'm going to continue my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins. Um, all right, Zach, talk about treatment protocols and um, what maybe what's changing uh, as we learn more and more about COVID-19. Yeah, it's interesting. You uh, had shared with me the article that was really talking about the Zoom calls. And I'll tell you, this pandemic has really shifted us in a lot of ways. In our, our system locally, for example, we were meeting with other hospital systems in our area 
via Zoom to talk about how to handle this pandemic on pretty much a weekly basis. And part of the reason is this stuff is changing all the time. The information is constantly coming out and we have to critique it. So to that end, kind of where we're sitting right now is we started up front and we thought all these patients needed ventilators um, if they were very serious or, or they needed something called ECMO, which is really like a, an artificial lung is a way to think about that. It kind of replaces the lungs and the hearts in these really serious cases. And what we've seen is that some of those different methods aren't as effective as we once thought they were going to be. And so we've moved away from kind of using those universally in patients, and we kind of do that on a more uh, a, a smaller scale. But what we're really doing is something called proning, where we actually take those patients and we'll lay them on their, their stomachs, basically, because it's a little easier in that case for the lungs to actually breathe against gravity. Um, we kind of add oxygen on top of that, and that helps to kind of keep them pretty regular for the most part. And then, of course, on top of those types of methods, we also will use a lot of different therapeutics like our steroids, which we've seen really good results from, um, plasma, which we've also seen some, some good results from, and then things like remdesivir. Which we've talked about uh, before. Um, mm -hmm. When we talk about uh, the kinds of experiences that people who contract COVID, the, the kinds of experiences that they're having, um, I'm I'm reading and in I don't know if it's an increasing number or it's just the frequency that's catching my attention. People who are having symptoms that linger over a very long period of time, um, maybe even something called long COVID, um, and that it's not just adults, but, uh, but young people as well, even kids who are uh, experiencing fatigue over a long period of time or other like persistent symptoms do you have any have you have you had any experience with patients for whom this lingers over a long period of time we we've had a few patients um, locally that have had some symptoms over long periods of time um, I can think of one it was actually a, a 30 some year old they were athletic and uh, they're, they're someone that you wouldn't have necessarily pegged as being high risk but they contracted a mild case of covid and it's actually given them persistent symptoms, and they, they struggle with shortness of breath on occasion. It's, it's been, I think, 60 days, and they're still having that on occasion. Mm -hmm. so, so we see that in some cases, and what we can't really say right now is who's at risk of that kind of thing happening in, in because it doesn't, mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily happen in everyone. And that, that's the hard part at this point in time. All right, and then I want to, um, one of the, I don't know, risk factors maybe, or complicating factors related to this is obesity. And we have a huge percentage of the American population that even if we don't perceive ourselves to be obese, we are by every technical definition. Um, and so talk with us about how the obesity epidemic in America is threatening the effectiveness of, of any potential COVID vaccine. So there, there's a few different ways that obesity has been kind of problematic with COVID. Um, one of which is that it puts people in kind of a chronic inflammatory state. And so if you think about the fact that COVID is actually, especially in the serious cases, causing significant inflammation, you can see how that stacking effect could be a problem. There's another thing we see with COVID, or excuse me, with obesity, where we have something called metabolic syndrome. And that means that typically people that are, are very obese often have a lot of heart conditions and sometimes diabetes along with those heart conditions. And of course, we know those are risk factors in and of themselves. So not only are these patients already at risk, the other thing that we see and we've known about historically is that, uh, especially morbidly obese people, 
typically have a more blunted immune response to vaccines. And for a vaccine to be effective, you actually have to be able to kind of achieve a target immunity, so to speak. You have you have certain antibody production that you have to have that takes place. And, and for a number of different reasons in, in obe obese patients, they don't necessarily have that same level of response. So those are some concerns that, that we're uh, kind of keeping track of at this point, and we don't quite yet know what implication that will have. Okay, and then um, we're reading uh, we're reading maybe positive, hopeful headlines frequently hearing about vaccine development and the pace we're on um, for the development of a vaccine. And then maybe some conversation about what life is going to look like once a vaccine is widely available, because there are going to be some people um, for whom just because the vaccine is out there, it doesn't mean they can return to life as quote unquote normal. You know, that's that's a great thing to discuss. So if we think about the vaccine, when we start to first see this in, enter into um, our communities, it's going to really be targeted at your frontline workers, your, your healthcare personnel, especially at first. But then your highest risk individuals are going to get it next. And so that's going to be your, your seniors. And it's also going to be uh, people with high risk disease states. Um, but what that means for those groups, it's going to take a little while before we have enough vaccine in circulation or enough herd immunity that's taken place before there's a pretty good level of protection. And so there's a little bit of concern that for individuals where the vaccine may not be working, they could still be at risk. So for that reason, you'll see as we kind of move into this like a post-vaccine future, at least for a while, um, there'll probably be less flights that occur and people will probably travel more by uh by land than by air, just because they'll be less exposed to a lot of people. You'll see uh, people still favoring takeout as opposed to dining in restaurants. Um, you'll see more meetings that are still going to be occurring electronically instead of in person and all those things that we've been seeing a lot of in, in COVID life. And really, it, if anything, that's really changed how we're functioning as a society. And I don't think we'll ever go back 100% to the way we were before COVID. It's really pushed us to do things differently, um, some for the better and some for the worse. Yeah, and, and maybe returning to like giant sports venues, um, you know, as well. Some of the things that, you know, maybe we just thought were a regular rhythm of life and maybe they're not going to be quite the regular rhythm um, anymore, uh, you know, after this. All right. Exactly. Uh, we, have, we have time for one more, uh, one, one more question on my part. <laughs> Because, you know, you're, I keep a list all week and I'm like, these are my Ask Zach questions. So um, I read this I read this headline in the Boston Herald um, in Massachusetts. Blue Cross is actually refunding refunding one hundred one million dollars in premiums because um, there were so many things that they expected people to have done during this period of time that people didn't do. And so um, Blue Cross Blue Shield is returning these premiums. I'm wondering, as a doctor, what that tells you, that people did not actually go and get all of the treatment protocols that insurance companies were expecting them to get during this uh, COVID shutdown? Well, it raises a lot of questions for sure. Uh, in, in some ways, they couldn't help it. I'll give you examples, at least from Ohio, and I know this is replicated in other states, but in Ohio, for example, we closed all elective surgeries. So people that were supposed to be scheduled to do routine surgeries that were not emergent, they couldn't go and get those things performed. So that'd be an example of something they'd be using insurance for that obviously they weren't doing. 
Um, so some things were not necessarily on part of people, but there were some choices made too, where people were probably less likely to see some of their physicians, or there was a lot of concern about going out um, and, and kind of engaging in things they normally would. And so a big question that we have to kind of ask ourselves is, well, are any of those going to lead to complications in individuals down the road? Um, so the insurance ba companies basically said, hey, you didn't really have an increased level of risk during this time. So for that reason, we're going to give you money back. Um, but you have to kind of ask again, is that really kind of delaying some of these things? And could we see problems down the road? We just don't know that, right now. That was totally my thought. I'm like, well, people who didn't have something done that was medically called for but not emergent, are they not going to still need that in the future? And might there also now be complicating factors related to it that are going to be more expensive for the insurance company? Yeah, yeah. Abs you and absolutely. I are thinking, thinking sort of down the same lines. Yeah, I don't expect. Uh, yeah, I don't expect insurance companies across the country to follow suit um, in this because I, I think everybody will do the math and be like, yeah, I think next year is going to be bad. Yeah. Hey, well, Zach, we got to oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say the, the only other thing I'll add is that uh, the one problem we have is that a lot of those things have been backed up and there's probably going to be a little bit of a line now. Mm -hmm. People don't like standing in line. <laughs> hey, Zach, thank you as always so much. Um, it's wonderful to talk with you. That's Zach Jenkins. You can find him at Cedarville University. You can also find him tweeting at FarmD Hiker. We'll be right back. All right. Uh, next up, Adam Carrington, I, Carrington and I are going to be talking about a range of headlines. President Trump has issued four COVID relief executive orders. We're going to cover those. We're also going to cover a piece in the New York Times front page yesterday where Elizabeth Dias is explaining to people who read the New York Times, which may not include you, uh, she is trying to explain to people why evangelical Christians support Donald Trump. Um, and she reaches back to a speech that uh, Donald Trump delivered in Iowa uh, in 2016 and uses that speech to really help demystify to the outside observer why evangelical Christians supported Donald Trump in 2016 and continue to do so in 2020. So Dr. Carrington and I are going to walk through Elizabeth's um, analysis um, because this is actually really helpful in sort of seeing ourselves as evangelical Christians who support the president, but also help us imagine how we might explain it to somebody who doesn't understand why evangelical Christians support the president. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I would venture to say that all teen behavior is driven by the need to belong. And when real connection isn't available, kids will stoop to cheap substitutes. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Appearance, performance, conformity. Your teen draws on all of these areas to fit in. You might notice a drastic change in your daughter's clothing or hairstyle. Maybe your son is using language he wouldn't normally use. It's shocking to a parent who spent so much time investing and teaching good character. But I'd encourage you to look beyond the behavior changes for just a moment. Is your teen acting out in order to belong? You can do a lot to help your teen feel accepted, especially at home. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org.
Joining me now, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Adam, welcome back. Glad to be back. Hope you're all well. Yeah, let me just say I'm, uh, I'm watching live coverage of what's going on in the streets of Chicago, and I just want to lift it up as a prayer concern to our listeners. Um, the Magnificent Mile was the target last night of, of rioters and uh, continues to be the target of looters. There are people um, basically trapped in the Westin um, as, as uh, rioters rage right outside um, high-end hotels. Um, and media outlets across the country, um, at least some of them, are choosing to instead uh, cover that a bunch of people gathered on beaches yesterday to enjoy the sunshine instead of uh, covering the ongoing rioting in that city. So uh, all of the bridges are up. That's the latest photo that's appearing. Um, There is no access to downtown Chicago, um, and if you don't live there, you can't get in, and apparently it's now very difficult also to get out so let's be praying for uh, that situation. It's breaking news uh, pretty much across the headlines right now. Um, let's talk about uh, the president's four COVID-related executive orders. Bring us up to date, Adam. Yes. Uh, so so President Trump, obviously, there's been ongoing negotiations uh, regarding um, what to do do financially for persons uh, that are being you know hurt by this because that's uh, an ongoing issue and and uh, in a series of orders uh, one that uh, one, uh, what the president's done among other things is uh, create a kind of holiday for the payroll tax which means uh, you will not owe uh, a payroll tax until uh, later um, which is meant to in some ways for people who are in a real bind right now to sort of push that down the road um, some of the uh, other ones, and, and really uh, three of them were really memoranda, one an executive order, but I, I won't get into the, the, the details with that. Um, and then uh, uh, others had to do with um, uh, providing some financial disaster relief to uh, uh, to those who are uh, hurting at, the, at this point. All of it, by the way, is based off of uh, a, mainly a law passed in 2000, which gives the president, when a national disaster has been declared, which basically it has been here, uh, to uh, move some of these things around to try to relieve financial distress based on the population. So that's that's what's uh, being discussed is mainly the, the, main, the big ones, the payroll tax holiday. And as uh, as folks are listening and watching to the co- watching the coverage related to this, let's just all keep in mind that the reason that the president um, announced that uh, he was going to go around Congress to deliver aid to the American people affected by the pandemic is because uh, stimulus talks stalled between Democrats and Republicans on the Hill. So uh, let's just be encouraging our lawmakers to get busy. If you don't like that things happen by executive order, then they need to uh, happen by the diligent work of Congress, and that is going to mean that they got to go back and start working together. Um, Adam, let's stay focused on the executive branch here for a moment, um, and let's talk about uh, the unfolding story of the presidential election, which we are now, I don't know, it feels like we're hotly in the midst of it, even though technically you know, we're not really supposed to start worrying about it till after Labor Day. Um, it feels like it's uh, it's a hot contest already, Yes. 
Yes. Uh, actually, I think it would be, uh, uh, this might be hard to imagine, I think it would be even a hotter contest if not for things like COVID. I think really that's, you know, often in August is a slow news month and summer can be slow news cycle and a presidential elections are, you know, how intense they get has been moved back earlier, earlier and earlier. If anything, uh, it has not been as scrutinized and followed as it might otherwise be because of how uh, COVID's dominated. That said, that just tells you how intense it would have been otherwise, because we still have a lot of people invested. Uh, we have people already, uh, you know, uh, accusing each other about whether they are pro or anti-God. <laughs> For example, uh, President Trump making that claim uh, or, or that Biden was wanting to hurt God. Um, so you see that... Um, a lot of people see uh, a, a lot of their own meaning and a lot of the future of the country in, 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 in this contest. And it's only going to get more intense as we get into the fall. All right. And then I want to uh, talk with you about this Elizabeth Dias piece. Uh, it was on the front page, 1A of the New York Times print edition. That's, a, that's some expensive real estate. If you're a journalist, um, the article, Christianity Will Have Power, I feel like Elizabeth is really trying to explain here to the readers of the New York Times um, why evangelical Christians supported Donald Trump in 2016 and why evangelical Christians continue in massive numbers to support him now. Um, and so uh, what stands out to you about uh, about this particular piece? Well, I think it's related to the, uh, you know, Donald Trump, President Trump got a lot of flack for saying that Biden was uh, going to hurt God. And I think it was badly put. Um, I think it's hard not to say it <laughs> it's was hard badly to hurt. put. It's hard to hurt God. God's, God's not going to get yeah, hurt. God's, God's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the the doctrine of God, uh, his his omni his omniscience and om, omnipotence sign sort of uh, push pushes against that. That said, uh, and I believe, by the way, that 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 uh, 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 Joe Biden is a man of genuine faith, even though he doesn't hold to all the doctrines of of the of the Catholic Church that he is a member of. That said, I think what he was trying to get at this article gets at, which is that. Um, President Trump saw that um, many evangelical Christians, many faithful ones, and this article is talking to, I think, some uh, people that come across to me as very faithful Christians, um, that uh, they feel that um, uh, that their that their country was built on a moral and religious foundation. Uh, as many, I'm sure, listening do as well. Uh, they believe that their way of life that is in many ways based off of that uh, is under attack, and they feel like they are have not been protected. They feel like they have been attacked and disparaged, and that what they see in President Trump, and it was interesting, the nuance here, They very many of them very much said, uh, we don't think he himself is necessarily one of us or, or even necessarily the best human being, but we believe that he is fighting for us and that he's someone that has, has uh, 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 fought back on our behalf and, and that, therefore, we, we feel this great loyalty to him, not necessarily as one of us, but as, as, as protector of sorts, given uh, uh, the, some of the steps he's taken toward religious freedom, given some of the, just the rhetoric he's used, uh, including this against Biden. I think a lot of, you know, a lot of his supporters are going to not think literally that Biden is, you know, going to hurt God 
but they're gonna but they're gonna see or uh, that this as a no, he's going to hurt Christians, and I'm going to stand up for them. And I thought the article was really trying to get at that and show that in a way that I think combines well with this spat over over uh, 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 the religiosity of both men. So I remember talking with Robert P. Jones about his book, The End of White Christian America, prior to the 2016 election cycle. I mean, you know, he's done all the math. Uh, Public Religion Research Institute has done all the math, spell out the profound political and, and cultural consequences of this new reality that America is no longer going to be majority white. And it's no longer going to be it's going to be majority Christian, but not in the same way that sort of traditional White, straight, married couples with children who go to church regularly think about uh, being in the American mainstream. I remember that conversation, and I believe what Elizabeth Dias has done here is helped uh, people, particularly the kind of people who read the New York Times, understand that evangelical Christians do not just support Trump as a uh, you know as a as a transactional thing that it's you know the 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 lesser of two evils or that they see him as the best chance in decades to end legalized abortion or to get you know the kind of supreme court justices that we're hopeful to have or just because we hate the person that he's running against um it, this is this is because there are a lot of people who view him as a protector the bully who's on our side is the way she she describes it um the one who can offer safety amidst fears that the country as we know it uh, and their place in it is changing and changing quickly. I, I think she gets it, um, and I think she is really seeking to communicate across uh, the cadre of Americans that simply do not understand evangelical Christianity and also do not understand the experience that many evangelical Christians are having in terms of the sense of a loss of power, uh, the sense of a loss of influence, the sense of of even our loss of like bearings as the world is changing so rapidly right here where we live. Um, it's a really important article. Um, I am going to tweet it out. I'm sure others will as well. It is in the New York Times. Um, and my guess is it's going to get so much traction that they will repost it somewhere uh, that gets everybody um, outside the paywall. Christianity will have power is the title. Um, all right. Uh, Adam Carrington and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, he may have some additional comments about this. And then after that, he and I are going to talk about Vice President Pence and some things he has said about the Chief Justice. We'll be right back. I see you dressed in Continuing my conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College, we like to talk across a range of political topics that those of us who are people of faith uh, might be interested in bringing to bear in the conversations of the day. Um, Adam, anything you want to uh, you want to say in closing on that uh, Elizabeth Dias piece in The New York Times? Yeah, and I think hopefully maybe a way to bridge understanding, you know, of people that may be more to the political left, there's some of the discussion of, uh, wanting those who have typically been oppressed to be seen, uh, in addition to being protected, uh, to not be uh, uh, caricatured, as we've seen. You know, there can be just these nasty old caricatures of people based on race or ethnicity or or, or other things. And I think that uh, uh, there, there are ways that 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 people, you know, maybe white evangelical Christians, need to understand that about their their neighbors that 
don't look or maybe think or, 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 or like them. And but I think there you can see in this a little bit of the reverse the other way that there are people uh, um, uh, in that in, in the evangelical community who want to not only be protected, but to be understood as they understand themselves, even if people aren't going to agree with them. And that's a charitable kind of civility that uh, I, I think we all could uh, uh, encourage in ourselves and others. It's a, um, it's a very good piece. All right, let's talk about uh, the vice president, and then let's talk about um, the, the Supreme Court. And uh, you and I have talked about um, actions of the Supreme Court this summer, some of which have been very supportive of religious freedom, religious liberty, others that have been maybe a little bit of a disappointment to conservatives, particularly on the life front. Uh, talk about what the vice president has said about the chief justice and just give us a little context here. Yeah, uh, Vice President Pence mentioned on a show that um, that Chief Justice Roberts has been a disappointment to conservatives. And uh, and 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 he sir, and I think part of this uh, I'll go from self-interested to principled. Self-interestedly, I think similar to President Trump's comments, uh, this is certainly an attempt to try to make sure that religious conservatives go to the to the ballot box. Uh, uh, this was a ma- the Supreme Court was a major issue in 2016 that got a lot of them to the to the courts or to the to the to vote uh, based on the courts. Um, but I think underneath also there's the the principled argument that drives many religious conservatives, and I believe drives Vice President P- Pence as well, which is. Uh, that the courts make so many important decisions for how our constitution uh, is 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 applied, how it rubber meets the road, does things in our daily lives, and it's the idea that um, the that uh, 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 that. Supreme Court Just Chief Justice John Roberts, though appointed by a Republican, George W. Bush, has made certain important decisions that uh, ha- have disappointed religious conservatives, have gone against what they think is the way the Constitution should be interpreted and applied. And one of them is abortion, the fact that he did not vote for the uh, striking down the uh, or for, for protecting the limitations on abortion that that Louisiana had this past term, or that he was in, or or most infamously, uh, no one's forgotten that he voted uh, to uphold the uh, Affordable Care Act uh, on on fairly dubious terms. So uh, I think the disappointment really is that he's a mixed bag. Uh, I could also point out that he was on the side of religious conservatives in Obergefell. Uh, he vote, He was the deciding vote to uphold uh, the partial birth abortion ban back in 2007, but he's been a mixed bag, and I think that's been disappointing to many religious conservatives like Pence who really think, uh, when are we going to get a court that's going to consistently side with what we think is the right view of the Constitution, and he's in many ways been inconsistent enough to to not have that dream realized. All right, you and I are technically out of time, but I would love for you to give us a one minute on uh, the primaries uh, in terms of um, Democrats being primaried from the extreme left um, and Republicans um, seemingly holding the line in terms of uh, I don't know, institutionalists who are uh, who are aligned with traditional Republican values, finding their way into um, uh, into the contest this fall. 
Yep. I, I think Republicans have been able to uh, balance a little bit the old and new divisions within the party, although I don't think that necessarily will hold. Within the Democratic Party, you're seeing uh, in very progressive districts, those districts moving more like their voters to become uh, much more the, the leadership of the progressive wing. Uh, you're not seeing it the same way you saw in Republican primaries in 2010 or 2012 with the Tea Party movement, where they're getting elected in contestable districts. Uh, Democrats are getting elected. These progressives are getting elected in uh, uh, more uh, uh, safe districts. But those safe districts often become the areas where the leadership of the party really grows. So I think that that pretends not so much contested general elections for Democrats, but uh, a, a new leadership that is growing that is going to be much more progressive and much more uh, sort of assertive in the debate between the old and new lines of the Democratic Party going forward. Which, if we had a whole other hour to talk, is the direction that you and I would go and we would talk about the uh, the Democratic Party platform. But we don't have time, so we're going to have to do that on another, uh, another occasion. Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College, thank you as always so much. He tweets at Carrington AM. We'll be right back. Yes, thank you to all of you who are letting me know how you think and feel. You can always text me at 877-933-2484. The text line is always open during the show. Um, all right, I am posting the articles that we talked about today um, on my Twitter feed, at Carmen LaBerge. I'll also post them in a roundup on my website, reconnectwithcarmen.com. The podcast will be posted later at myfaithradio.com. All the good places to connect the show with others and share it share it. We want you to become uh, missionaries of the program. That's um, that's kind of one of our hopes here. So hope you are positively impacted by what we're doing and you can positively impact others by sharing the show with somebody new. Next up, I've got Ryan Putman. The uh, question is, does Mission Unite and Doctrine Divide? Hmm. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.